my name is Ewan Morgan. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a professor of the U.S. studies here at the Institute. And uh, uh, I'm delighted uh, to introduce tonight uh, uh, Marisa Futenik. And uh, we're having a kind of launch. It's already been launched, but this is the most important launch. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on her book, 13 Presidents, and uh, uh, say a few words about uh, Marisa. She's uh, an artist and a writer based in London, but you will soon find out that she doesn't, wasn't born in London. Uh, she uh, was born in Detroit, uh, grew up in Hartford, attended Yale, uh, but has also uh, been in schools, uh, uh, Goldsmith and the Royal Academy here. Uh, she's exhibited uh, in several places in London and the United States on her artwork. And she's the author of a number of books, including one which I find, I don't know how I missed this one, but I will have to go and get it as soon as tonight's event is over. Uh, the Watergate Complex, published by Rice and Toy, 2015. Um, the book is entitled 13 Presidents, and uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, the research was required for it uh, for Marisa to visit all the presidential libraries uh, from uh, Herbert Hoover's down to uh, George W. Bush's. Yes. Uh, um, so, uh, uh, without further ado, I'll hand over to her, and uh, she will introduce the book and do a reading from it. He's the director of the institute. <laughs> <laughs> And so the result of that 
that trip and that research is this book. Um, this book consists of 13 short stories, and the stories are fiction. So even though I did do all of this factual research, that was the groundwork for writing um, fictional short stories. And, um, and there's one story with each of those presidents as a character. And then the stories sit alongside many, many photographs, and that's what we're seeing behind here. So I think it's 274 photographs in the book. So the photographs are of equal importance to the text. And they're not necessarily directly illustrating things in stories. And as you can see, they're not necessarily photographs of the libraries themselves. They're very much about place and about the places where these presidents are from and other places in America that are connected to that. Um, so I thought that tonight I would read the Reagan story um, since Ewan's got a book that is coming out at the end of this month. Well, it's already correct? out, yes, but the official book. That's, that's a biography of Reagan, and so then we can maybe talk a little bit about the interplay between fact and fiction, and you can pick up on all of the things that I've made up and things <laughs> that I've not. Um, and I mean, I should say that at this point, I've been working on this project for um, two years now. I went on a road trip at the end of 2014, and... Um, the things that are true and the things that I've made up have started to blur in my mind slightly. Uh, it's not always so obvious which things are fictional and which things are factual. Um, but yeah, but I'll leave it at that and I'll uh, read the story and then we'll have a bit of a chat afterwards. So the story is called Rawhide. Interior, an apartment, night. The floor of Ronnie's apartment in the Montecito starts to shake. Four volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica, cast to coal, coal to dama, dama to edic, game to gun, fall off the shelves. A full set of cocktail glasses smashes on the floor. The tremors last for several seconds. Ronnie remains fast asleep. It's only when his teenage neighbor, the moon-faced little Mickey, bangs on the door and shouts that Ronnie comes to. He puts on his burgundy silk dressing gown and in bare feet steps out into the hallway. This is Ronnie's first earthquake. I'm now an official Angelino, he thinks. Gathered outside his door, in various states of undress, are the other residents of the 12th floor. Most of them, like Ronnie, are contract players at one or another of the big studios. Geez, do you think we should go down to the lobby? The bottle blonde from 12G asks. She is barely recognizable without her face on. Though without his glasses, everyone looks mostly the same to Ronnie, especially the blondes. <coughs> I'll let the doorman know that we're all okay up here, Mickey says. Just going back to bed. This was a small one, folks. Trust me, you'll know when it's the real deal. There are a lot of things that happen in Los Angeles that didn't happen back in Dixon, Illinois. Ronnie's only just starting to learn how this town works. Before returning to bed, he takes his lucky raccoon bone off the shelf and tucks it into his pajama pocket. Just in case there are any aftershocks, he says to himself as he drifts off to sleep, dreaming that he's King Kong carrying Fay Ray up a cardboard Empire State Building. Interior, a movie studio. Ronnie is completely surrounded by a wall of light. He's blinded by the high wattage spots shining on his face. Ronnie is playing the hero, U.S. Secret Service Agent Lieutenant Brass Bancroft. Code of the Secret Service is the follow-up picture to Secret Service of the Air. 
It's the first take of a scene in which Brass Bancroft fires a gun at a fleeing suspected counterfeiter in a Mexican alley. Bang, bang. Ronnie crouches behind an Oldsmobile that's been cut in half to allow easy access for shooting interiors. He pretends to wipe sweat from his brow. When the guy playing the counterfeiter hits his mark beside a stack of fake crates, Ronnie leaps out from behind the car. Bang, bang, bang. Gotcha, you good for nothing? Looks like you're heading to the big house north of the border. Say adios, Joe. They wrap after 10 days. The producer attempts to shelve the film. The studio refuses to do so, but agrees to not release it in Los Angeles. Ronnie has to drive all the way up to Bakersfield to see the darn thing. The ticket taker at the theater recognizes him from the movie and says, Mister, you should be ashamed. Your picture stinks. They still shoot two more in the series, Smashing the Money Ring and Murder in the Air, all within the space of a year. Montage. Ronnie and Nancy get married. He's already 41 and once divorced. She's pregnant, and so that is that. Ronnie doesn't think much about it. It's just something that happens. They get a set of 8x10 glossies printed up of their wedding photo. They both look fabulous. The lighting is great. Ronnie's baby face has turned ruddy, and he's starting to wrinkle after a few decades in the sun, but it gives him a more dashing, Clark Gable sort of air, he thinks. He still has a hairless chest, the habit of shaving held over from high school and college summers as a lifeguard back in Illinois. But he's no skinny kid anymore. He has lean muscle on his body, and the goodness of Californian life shows in his broad shoulders, his toned torso, his thick, glossy dark hair, his white teeth, his solid assured stride as he and Nancy stroll along the beach on their honeymoon. They spend summer vacations on Catalina, Ronnie playing shark with the kids, Nancy hovering uncomfortably along the edge of the pool. She won't even dip her feet in. I saved 77 people from drowning in the Rock River, he tells her for the hundredth time. You don't need to be afraid. But she just sits there in an expensive swimsuit and oversized sunglasses, drinking seven and sevens and watching other people have a good time. They build a house in Pacific Palisades and put in a pool. This is just about the best thing that Ronnie could ever imagine happening in his entire life, except maybe having his own horse. He's been emceeing in Las Vegas for a while since the movie and television jobs dried up. He doesn't much mind about the kind of work he does, if it means having his own swimming pool. What better picture of happiness is there? Ronnie buys a Super 8 camera and starts shooting home movies. Deeply saturated color films of the kids doggy paddling, of their maypole dances, of their birthday parties, little classics. Every year they hire the same guy with the dog that rides on the back of the pony to entertain the children. Ronnie loves watching that dog ride around on the pony. Whenever he points the camera at Nancy, though, she always turns away or covers her face or waves him off. And so most of the footage is just of the kids or of Ronnie or of that dog on the pony, a miniature American flag hanging out of its mouth. Exterior, a ranch, dusk. I've decided to call it Rancho del Cielo. Has a nice ring to it, don't you think? means ranch in the sky, Ronnie explains, but it can also mean heaven's ranch. And look, down there is our Lake Lucky. He points beyond the adobe house to a small man-made pond. 
Ronnie is riding Rebel, his Palomino. John Wayne is on Little Man, Ronnie's swift thoroughbred. Duke, Ronnie starts. Duke, you know, I've always thought of you as a kindred spirit. Another proud, small-town Midwesterner who made his way here to the Promised Land. Both of us American success stories, wouldn't you say? <sighs> Duke sniffs a little. He leaves a long gap before speaking. Well, now, Dutch, I like to think staying back in Madison County wouldn't have made me a failure, exactly. But, you know, I grew up in California, really. I mean, I was old enough to remember playing in the covered bridges, but you were a Democrat held a lot longer than I was in Iowan. We are what we say we are, Duke. Duke and Dutch, just two old cowboys on the range. Just two old cowboys on the range, Duke repeats, as if it's a line from a script. They ride into the sunset as Duke tells Dutch about his podiatrist appointment. Begin flashback. Exterior, a family backyard, day. Ronnie is a great hula hooper. Two-year-old Patty claps her chubby little hands in delight as her father swirls his hips around, effortlessly making the pink and white plastic circles spin. Ronnie smiles at the applause from his audience of one. He holds the hula hoop off to the side and takes an elaborate bow. End flashback. Interior, a home office, day. Ronnie is going to run again. This time he thinks he can win it, the whole enchilada. A letter arrives from Duke, written on Republican National Committee stationery. It's long and angry and threatening. Duke accuses Ronnie of spreading lies. He ends the letter by informing Ronnie that he will be backing the Democrats come 1980. But Duke dies before the election year and won't get a chance to cast his ballot for Jimmy Carter. When news comes of Duke's passing, Nancy calls him a cocksucker. Ronnie looks at himself in the mirror, trying to judge if his face is showing grief or sadness. Interior, the Oval Office, day. Ronnie is a terrible speller. He writes all of his letters himself by hand. No one ever bothers to point out his bad spelling, not even his White House staff. And Nancy never corrects it because she's a terrible speller too. But they both have beautiful penmanship. Ronnie likes to write letters on stationery with a jovial Sandra Boynton cartoon of goofily drawn turkeys climbing all over an elephant with the caption, don't let the turkeys get you down. Exterior, a ranch, day. Ronnie reads English style because he was trained as a cavalryman, but most people give him gifts of Western style tack and saddlery since they just assume that he rides like a cowboy. The secret service handle is rawhide after all so he can't blame people for not realizing. His favorite horse is El Alamin, a white Arabian, real classy. Ronnie's secret service agent rides behind him on a stout American quarter horse called Monty, carrying the nuclear football. Ronnie tries to imagine that he is alone out here in the Santa Inez Mountains. Just me and the snakes in the grass, he jokes to himself. He looks out at the ripening grapes in the nearby vineyards. He takes in the scent of the oak trees and the chaparral, which smells like sage. Exterior, the Brandenburg Gate, day. This is the scene where the hero stands up to the villain. Ronnie has been preparing for it all morning. The camera zooms in for the close-up. 
Ronnie delivers the line perfectly on the first take. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Cue the crowd, applause, cheers, waving of small American flags. In a husky yet velvety voice, soothing but with authority, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Cue further applause, cheers, flag waving. Begin flashback. Interior, a car, day. 13-year-old Ronnie is riding in the back seat of his father's car. Ronnie's mother's glasses are on the seat next to him. Just for fun, he tries them on. He's so shocked by seeing the world in focus for the first time that his loud yelp nearly causes his father to crash the car. Ronnie is given his own pair of glasses, but he prefers not to wear them, not out of vanity, but because he likes to see things fuzzy, blurry, foggy. Everything is so much more magical that way. The squinting becomes part of his look, gives the impression that he's thinking real hard and deep about something, he reckons. Makes him look important, too, but still like a nice guy. End flashback. Interior, exterior, a ranch, day. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon, and there's a lot of brush on the far side of the ranch that needs clearing. Everyone keeps telling Ronnie that he's getting a little long in the tooth to be doing ranch work. And perhaps as president of the United States, he's a little overqualified. But it gives him a good excuse to get out of the house. He tucks his white t-shirt into his jeans, only the slightest paunch rolling over his belt. He slides into an old pair of boots and puts on a knitted cap and gold-rimmed, orange-tinted aviator sunglasses. This is what he likes to wear when Nancy doesn't choose his wardrobe for him. It's his laboring everyman look. Outside in the sharpness of the Southern California sun, Ronnie pulls on heavy-duty work gloves and hoists up a chainsaw. When he comes back inside for a break, Nancy glares at him and without a word holds out a red cardigan, which he obediently puts on over his sweaty t-shirt, even though it's far too warm a day for a sweater. Nancy flicks through the current issue of Secrets of the Zodiac and sips from a glass of iced tea crowded with lemon wedges. She reads Ronnie his horoscope. The current movement of Saturn through the sign of cancer bodes well for you in business, though less so in affairs of the heart. As an earth sign, you are rational, preferring the simple and the ordered. Your natural attitude of indifference will ensure that any personal tribulations in the coming days will have little impact upon you. Keep taking advantage of your Mercury-Neptune opposition. This is the source of your appearance of charm and the key to maintaining any position of power in your life. Ronnie's not paying attention. You should really be listening to this, Nancy snorts. She throws the magazine on the table. As she picks up her drink, the earth starts to shake abruptly. She drops the glass, lemon wedges, and ice cubes flying into the air. She grips the sleeves of Ronnie's cardigan. She tugs on him as if he's a security brace rather than her husband. Her fingernails break the skin of his wrists, the trickles of blood camouflaged by the cardigan. The quake knocks them both into the wall and then hard to the ground. Ronnie slides out of Nancy's bony hands and rushes out to the stables. The horses are whinnying. They grate their hooves into the ground and kick dirt around wildly. Catalina Musraf, Nancy's chestnut Arabian, named for their old vacation spot, has collapsed in her stall. She's fallen sideways. Her right foreleg is pointed up at a terrible angle. 
Inside, Nancy cries out for the housekeeper, for the gardener, for the cook. Help me, goddammit. Where are you people? Come and help me, she shrieks. When no one comes to her aid, she pulls her tiny frame up and stumbles down the hall to her special room. Thousands of shards of crystal are sprayed across the carpet, reflecting light in every direction, making a rainbow. There are dismembered paws of teddy bears holding pink hearts, fragments of tiny legs and feet from ballerinas en point, decapitated heads of rearing stallions and unicorns, broken wings of hummingbirds and necks of swans, shattered trunks and faces from dozens of elephants with rubies and emeralds and sapphires for eyes. My babies, my precious babies, she wails. It takes Ronnie some time to find Nancy when he comes back into the house. Catalina's dead, he tells her. He impresses himself by how gently and tenderly the words come out. He's good at sounding empathetic. Directors have always told him that. On cue, he holds his arms out for his wife. But she just sits there, her figure a little matchstick with feathered hair poking out of the great pile of smashed figurines. She says nothing. She doesn't care about the horse, he realizes. Her face is cold and blank. She doesn't care. She doesn't care that her horse is dead. The scene is not playing out as Ronnie expects it to. He has to improvise. Ronnie lets his leathery hand shake a little as he pulls off the cardigan and drops it on the mountain of broken crystal. He stares at the floor with moist blue eyes and letting all softness leave his voice, delivers the ad-lib. Red is a goddamn commie color, Nancy. Just a few remarks. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if uh, the uh, uh, minor earthquake happened uh, during uh, uh, Rancho del Cielo, and I'm, I'm not sure if uh, Nancy's uh, favorite mount uh, died uh, of... Uh, uh, related causes to it, uh, but a lot of what you said uh, uh, resonated uh, very much with me. Uh, um, one thing, of course, uh, uh, Reagan was incredibly short-sighted, and uh, uh, he, um, uh, his parents uh, didn't know this because uh, uh, he had such a prodigious memory as a child uh, that uh, his grades hadn't suffered in uh, school uh, because. Uh, uh, he, he memorized things very quickly, and it was on this uh, family ride out that uh, his brother was able to read the billboards they were passing on the road, and uh, uh, Dutch uh, couldn't, and he put on his mother's uh, glasses, kidding around, and suddenly for the first time, he was 13 at the time, he could see things, the world as it was. Uh, uh, I'm not sure he... Uh, uh, preferred not to wear them thereafter uh, because it was better to see the world in uh, blobs and greys. Uh, I think it was more a case of teenage angst because uh, uh, these were pretty uncool things uh, just at the time that he was uh, entering the stage of life where he was hoping that young women would become interested in him. Um, the, uh, uh, the other thing that uh, struck me was uh, um, I have uh, in pursuit of my art, watched most of Ronald Reagan's movies, 
and uh, I have <laughs> watched, in fact I have a DVD of the four at home, uh, purchased at some considerable cost, I might say, of the Brass Bancroft <laughs> movies. And um, a couple of things there, uh, uh, they were made in seven to ten days, they were meant to be shown at the bottom of the bill, uh, a warm-up for the air movies, but Warner Brothers made them uh, in order to instill uh, popular interest and pride in law, inf law enforcement officials. And of course, uh, Warner Brothers was the most uh, pro-interventionist uh, um, studio in the run-up to World War II and did a number of pro-Allied movies. Uh, Reagan uh, uh, would star in uh, uh, International Squadron, um, uh, a much more significant movie than the Brass Bancroft movies uh, in 1941, uh, uh, which was uh, uh, when he appears as a, a Yank in the uh, US Air Force. And there's a couple of other movies he does at the same time. But interestingly, uh, the um, International Squadron uh, is premiered back in his hometown of Dixon, uh, where they're holding a Ronald Reagan week. And of course, um, it's premiered in the most isolationist part of the country. So. Quite a bit in the story associated more significantly with the Brass Bancroft movies. Um, uh, one of the uh, they 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 were big. Um, they were a big draw, largely with the younger audiences, and they played in the country uh, on uh, very often on Saturday matinees. And uh, one child uh, called Jerry Parr who saw the. Brass Bancroft movies uh, uh, was inspired. Uh, he was a ten-year-old in Montgomery, Alabama, and he was inspired to become a Secret Service agent. And Jerry Parr was the guy who was in charge of the Secret Service detail on the day that Ronald Reagan was shot. And uh, uh, the the you can hear this on the the tape recording of the Secret Service uh, rawhide with Reagan's um, uh, Secret Service codename. Uh, Rawhide and Hurt returning to Crown, and Crown was a Secret Service uh, uh, name for White House. But then suddenly uh, they realised that uh, all was not well, and uh, Pa uh, draw uh, ordered the Secret Service detail uh, to change route and drive to Walter Reed Hospital. Uh, Reagan walks into, and of course we know the story. Though you know he he says to the operating team. Uh, uh, I hope you guys are all Republicans, but in actual fact, it was a much closer run thing. Uh, he, his systolic blood pressure dropped remarkably, and if he hadn't been such a fit 70-year-old, he probably would have died. Um, but uh, uh, he, he doesn't, and uh, of course, uh, um, uh, the, you know, he becomes the first president who has survived being shot. Uh, I was also interested in uh, the story you tell about his 77 um, uh, life-saving episodes. He was a, um, a lifeguard in uh, uh, Dixon, Illinois, for about seven summers uh, during the late high school years and uh, when he was a student. And they were... In fact, uh, they became an important source of income for the family during the Depression. And um, uh, Reagan uh, uh, saved 77 people, but uh, interestingly, he learned that a lot of people said, no, no, I was fine, I was fine, uh, I didn't need saving. But uh, Ronald Reagan uh, 
kept the tally at 77, and uh, what is less well-known, there was a 78th uh, when uh, he was governor of California. He, was, uh, uh, he and Nancy were hosting a party for uh, the governor's staff and uh, the young child of a, um, uh, a black uh, African-American aide uh, got into difficulties in the pool that he were talking about. And Ronald Reagan dived fully closed into the pool to rescue the girl. And uh, it didn't get out for ages because, uh, you know, Reagan said, no, no, I, I don't want this to get out. But uh, the Baltimore Afro, African-American or Afro-American, I can't remember which, got hold of it. And uh, uh, Ronald Reagan got some uh, black votes as a consequence. Uh, um, I can't really, uh, I mean, there was so much that uh, you mentioned there. Uh, um, the, the second Brass Bancroft movie, what was it called again? Well, whatever it was, the second <laughs> Brass Bancroft uh, with the Mexican counterfeiters, it's a direct rip-off, an inferior rip-off of the 39 Steps. Uh, but for those of you who have seen the 39 Steps, uh, uh, the villain miss is missing the top lock of his, uh, uh, of his middle finger. It's code of the Secret Service. It's code of the Secret Service. And... Uh, um, uh, in the um, in the movie uh, that Reagan appears in, uh, to be absolutely sure that uh, uh, they're not hand up for copying the uh, Alfred Hitchcock John Bucket movie, uh, the villain lacks a leg. Uh, which, but uh, uh, in the last one of those series, and it's quite interesting. Uh, he it was called um, oh, I, I don't know the. Uh, they all sound very similar. Yeah, they are. <laughs> uh, so murder in the air, the last one. No, no. Um, the, he, he, he's got a, he's a secret service man who's got to protect this uh, uh, newly constructed uh, uh, ray gun, which has the uh, power to shoot down planes in midair to defend the United States. And, of course, uh, many years later, in 1983, his critics say that he got the idea of Star Wars from appearing in this movie. Of course, he didn't. Uh, there was much more rational scientific evidence for it. But it is an indication that uh, uh, Ronald Reagan wasn't taken very seriously by his critics. Well, that kind of brings us to this year's election cycle, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it might be interesting to talk about any parallels between Reagan's run for the presidency and Donald Trump's. and. I, I mean, for me, the, the stories in this book and, and this whole project is very much about um, these 13 individuals as human beings, and mm -hmm. so it's a lot about personal narrative, and as I said before about place, the stories are um, generally set either before or after the presidency, not during and not in Washington, but rather in, in their hometowns. Um, but. One of the things that seems very different this year to me is that there's less of an emphasis on the political narrative of the candidates and the origin story. Um, and But Reagan was an interesting case in that he did not necessarily have the traditional candidate for offices, origin story, and, and personal narrative. And that was criticized a lot at the time. Maybe you can talk a bit more about that. Well, yes, Reagan was unusual in having had a uh, quite significant pre-political career. Uh, he doesn't run for office until he's 55 when he contests the governorship of California. Uh, so from the... He starts off in 1933 
as a, um, a radio commentator, primarily a sports commentator, and um, he uh, gets into movies in uh, 1937. Movie career peters out in the uh, mid-50s, but he, uh, he begins on a new career in television uh, when he's invited to act as the host of the General Electric Theatre, uh, which runs on uh, Sunday evening, uh, CBS show on Sunday evening, and that uh, becomes quite a well-known um, uh, program. And when that peters out, uh, he manages a few years uh, in uh, as host of Death Valley Days. So Ronald Reagan has been a radio personality, a film personality, and a television personality. But of course, he has also been a uh, he's first president who can claim to have been a trade union leader because he's president of the Screen Actors Guild. But the, the point was that Reagan was so well known, uh, uh, he didn't have to tell his story in the way that uh, perhaps uh, Jimmy Carter had, had to do in 1976. Uh, um, Reagan, Reagan, when he ran for governorship of California, produces a volume of memoirs called Where's the Rest of Me? And that tells a story uh, from his birth in 1911 to up to his uh, gubernatorial run in 1966, when it comes out in 1965. So, you know, he's already well known. Uh, uh, it's quite interesting this year, we think we know Hillary Clinton, uh, but uh, Clinton makes an attempt at self-narrative in the speech where she accepts the presidential nomination and she says, uh, you know, I come from this, uh, she virtually claims working class background, uh, two generations previously, uh, that her father then worked himself up from fairly humble circumstances to a goodly position in business, neglecting to mention that he was a conservative Republican, but uh, nobody's perfect. Uh, but he, her, her, uh, her narrative was very much on her, uh, um, on her mother in that speech. Uh, and she hadn't brought it up again, uh, which, uh, uh, you, know, the, the, you, know, you, you know, if you think of Bill Clinton, the man from mm -hmm. hope, yeah. you know, that perfect narrative. Well, Hillary, you know, Hillary Clinton doesn't, isn't apparently very comfortable with that. But Trump, um, I mean, uh, we, we know him as a, his connection to Miss World uh, and uh, with The Apprentice, uh, I, I had great difficulty taking him seriously until it was too late. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a very strange election. Uh, uh, you know, Barack Obama sold his story, you know, through the, um, the, uh, the, the his father's personal voyage, uh, personal odyssey, that memoir. Oh, well, he had very complicated personal Yes, narrative. he did. He and did. that was not a nice, tidy origin story no. to no, but few, few of them are, you know, they, they sell them as a kind of one-dimensional path. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, was very complex. Uh, you know, his father had been an alcoholic. Um, he, uh, he had a first wife. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when he ran for governor of California in 1966, uh, it was just two years after Nelson Rockefeller had been bested in the 1964 presidential primaries, and one thing against him wasn't simply his liberalism, was the fact that uh, he had divorced his first wife and 
marry the woman involved in the divorce case. So uh, he scored very badly with uh, Republican Conservatives. And in the 1966 campaign, um, Reagan's two children, well, one, children, one child by his first wife, Maureen, and the child that he and his first wife had adopted, Michael, they were cut out of campaign literature. The, campaign, the 1966 campaign literature only focused on Nancy and the two children they had together. Um, but uh, by 1980, of course, uh, uh, things had changed. Uh, but even in his memoir, uh, Ronald Reagan had to be, it was a presidential memoir, Ronald Reagan had to be compelled by his ghostwriter uh, to, to admit that he had been married once before. Reagan didn't like to talk about it. And there are 13 lines in the memoir about uh, the very famous actress that he was married to. Yeah. I mean, that idea of, of really limiting what information is presented from history is one of the things that struck me when, before I started this project, the very first presidential library I visited was the Nixon Library in um, near Belinda, California, about four years ago, and I actually went on a whim thinking it would be good for a laugh, and was really surprised by how fascinating it was. Um, and, and actually the Nixon Library just reopened uh, last Friday after a big renovation. And when I was on a book tour in the States last month, I was invited to speak to the team that were doing the new exhibitions at the Nixon Library, which was fun. But um, but yeah, so, so one of the things that's also interesting about the Nixon Library is that it's very um, close to the Reagan Library, so it's quite easy to visit both of them. And I was really struck by the contrast between those two libraries. Um, at the time when I first visited those two, the admission price was very different. I believe the Nixon Library was $5.95, and the Reagan Library was $22.95, although they do have an Air Force One plane at the Reagan Library, and Nixon just has a helicopter. Um, the Nixon Library is very empty, the Reagan Library was very full with visitors, but uh, another thing that, that really struck me between those two is that the Nixon Library had, and this was not the original iteration of the displays at that library, but at that stage, there was a very extensive display on Watergate that was almost too much detail. It was like more information than you wanted to know. It went into such great detail about Watergate for a general audience. Whereas at the Reagan Library, there was like one line about Iran-Contra. There was a little tiny picture of Oliver North, and a little line somewhere underneath that that mentioned Iran-Contra, and that was it in the library about that. Yeah, this is, of course, a quite interesting issue. Uh, the Nixon Library was privately run uh, from its opening sometime about 1991, I think, until 2007, when it was taken over and integrated into the federal uh, presidential library system. And uh, until that time, if you wanted to research the uh, Nixon presidential papers, you had to go to uh, uh, the Federal Archives in Suitland, Maryland, where Nixon's papers are held. Uh, now you can get them, uh, should you so wish. Um, and in fact, uh, one of last year's MA students went out to uh, look at uh, the uh, uh, records of Nixon's chief of staff, and uh, she actually went to the California one. Um, I went to the Nixon Library in 2006 before you before it became part of the presidential library system. Um, it's the first presidential library I've really been thrown out of because um, in my enthusiasm to point out something to my daughter, 
I went to cross uh, the line that you shouldn't cross, and then suddenly an alarm went, and uh, I had to talk. I had to, t you know, they thought of oh, this guy. This guy's a strange guy. He's not one of us. And I'd explain who I was. Uh, but uh, in the Nixon Library at that time, there was a Watergate exhibition, and you went into a dark, unlit corridor, and on the walls were blocks with text on, no pictures. Uh, so, you know, you could hardly see what was going on. Uh, now you have a very effective and interactive uh, Watergate system. The Watergate, uh, the Nixon Library was uh, parodied as the library, L-I-E-B-R-A-R-I, -E -R -R because it's so particularly made of Nixon. But uh, I think it's quite interesting uh, about presidential libraries. I was trying to work out um, whether I could beat John. I probably can't. Uh, I've been to FDR. I've been to Eisenhower. I've been to Kennedy, Johnson, uh, haven't actually been to the Nick, although I have been to the museum, uh, uh, Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. And, you, you know, your point that they all reflect something about them. Well, of course, the Reagan library uh, isn't anywhere near where Reagan was born. And the college where he went uh, as an undergraduate made a bid to host the library. This was Eureka College in... Uh, I suppose, uh, north central Illinois, uh, and Reagan didn't want it there. He wanted it in uh, um, uh, Simi Valley, and uh, I suppose uh, there is a connection. Simi Valley is very close to where the westerns at Hollywood uh, B-movies shot in the 1930s and the big ranch close by, and a lot of the westerns were filmed there. And, of course, Simi Valley is a white Anglo-suburban community the kind of voters who voted for Ronald Reagan. So, um, the Reagan Library is uh, officially the largest presidential library in terms of square footage. Uh, that uh, status briefly passed to the Clinton Library when it was opened in Little Rock, uh, but uh, immediately the Reagan Library set out to create the Air Force One um, exhibition, which added sufficient uh, uh, square footage to the light to the to, to the Reagan Library that it's back at number one uh, um, but uh, it's, it's a lovely building Spanish style building um, every time I've been there I've been there several times uh, when uh, uh, all the visitors go the rich Reagan Foundation people come in for their uh, you know adulatory meetings of Ronald Reagan uh, there's lots of money sloshing around uh, for the Reagan Library. The Reagan Foundation is dedicated to preserving Reagan in Aspic as a conservative hero. Um, uh, whether that will change if Trump, I wonder how many of them supporting Trump, uh, um, certainly a, a very different kind of Republican to Reagan. Um, but uh, it, Reagan is buried on the, uh, uh, on the site. Uh, 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 Nancy, who died earlier this year, is buried alongside him. Uh, and uh, whether you admire Reagan or not, it is quite moving to uh, to be outside the vault to see the inscription, quotation from Ronald Reagan, and then gaze out at the, this fantastic vista of rolling California, Southern California hills. But then, the, I mean, one of the things about presidential libraries is the fact that they all are all very different from one another, not just because they're situated in very different places from one mm. another. Many of them are in very small towns, or a lot in the Midwest. Um, but because of that 
public-private partnership where the federal government yeah. is responsible for this document archive side of the institution, but then there's usually a private foundation that looks after the artifacts and the museum display part of the library. Um, the level of funding for that side of things, there's definitely a big discrepancy. So say the Hoover Library in West Branch, Iowa, definitely does not have the same resources of the Reagan Foundation and the Reagan Library. Um, and, and I think, I mean, we've been hearing about the Clinton Foundation in the last few months, but there, there was this idea now with some of the more recent ex-presidents to use that foundation to do philanthropic work, and the Carter Foundation has been very, very active, and the Clinton Foundation has been very active. My understanding of the Reagan Foundation is that they don't necessarily do the same kind of philanthropic no. work. No, they don't. Uh, they, uh, they, they are there to preserve Ronald Reagan as they want Ronald Reagan to be preserved. Uh, um, you know, they... Um, I mean, it's not only the... Uh, Ronald Reagan Foundation, but the Ronald Reagan Legacy Project, uh, uh, which was established in 1997, uh, directed by uh, the most uh, notorious, I would say, but famous other people would say, conservative political operator in the United States, uh, Grover Norquist, and uh, uh, the Reagan Legacy Project tried to, well, set out to get a Reagan memorial in every county in the United States as part of it. Uh, um, and they were very successful. Um, if you go to Covington, Louisiana, you will find a 15-foot statue in bronze of Ronald Reagan, officially the highest Ronald Reagan statue in the world. Um, there was an attempt to get Reagan uh, to replace FDR's head on the dime piece. That got nowhere. And, he, and Nancy Reagan said, I do not support this. Ronnie idolized FDR. He would never want to replace FDR on the dime. And of course, uh, the two big ones that may happen, but I think they'll take a goodly while, the, they want to carve Reagan's face on Mount Rushmore. I don't think there's space for it. Uh, but more likely to happen is there'll be a Ronald Reagan uh, memorial on the mall. It took uh, FDR... 50 or more years after his death, so sometime around about 2055, if you're still around, maybe there'll be a Ronald Reagan Memorial on the Mall in Washington, D.C. Uh, really like to thank uh, Marissa for a fascinating presentation. Uh,